You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. How are we, guys? All right. We're awake. I love it. So we're on our final week of this series, uh, Pour One Out. I've really enjoyed this uh, series that we've done. And let me just say that as I look back on the last month so far, it's been very evident to me that Jesus has been at work to help us think through how to handle our finances. And as I've talked with a number of you and heard in my life group and heard from other leaders, I've been very encouraged at the conversations that are taking place, how we're all being challenged and encouraged to uh, think about our money and resources with a more Godward and God-honoring perspective and seeing ourselves as stewards, not owners thinking about contentment and a culture where it's little found and so forth. Very much seems like Jesus has been at work in the midst of all these discussions, and I don't want to take that for granted ever. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9, uh, the passage that Andrew just read for us today. We're going to be skipping around in that passage. And as you're turning there in your Bible or your phone, Earlier in our series, we talked about the vision that God has for our resources, and we talked about the the three big categories for how to think about money were provision, enjoyment, and blessing others. Provision, enjoyment, and blessing others. We've already covered the provision and enjoyment categories. If you missed those, uh, go back and listen to the, the previous sermons in the series. And today, I want us to unpack that last bit, blessing others. Or to say it a bit differently, I want us to think about the topic of biblical generosity this morning. And this is the topic we have to really dig into because when it comes to money and how to use it and resources, the world often tells us messages that are contrary to the sort of abundant life flourishing vision that the Bible talks about. And I would argue this is probably the biggest point of difference. Let me just go ahead and say Just to disarm us a bit, if you grew up around church when it comes to this topic, you may be bracing up for a guilt trip, and I just want to say no guilt trip is coming, so you're good. Rather, I want us to get in a place of gratitude and excitement when it comes to generosity. So if you would, pray with me uh, as we begin. Father, I I pray that you would speak through your word, speak through your spirit as only you can. I pray that you would uh, give us the vision that you have for our finances, for our resources that you've entrusted to us. I pray that you would help us to to think about them well, uh, to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us and realize that nothing is our own, that we will not take any of it with us and that you've entrusted it to us uh, to use for your purposes. And I pray that uh, you would encourage, challenge, convict, and um, help us this morning in all the ways that we need it. Speak in ways that only you can. Thank you for Jesus. We love you. Amen. All right, so I've got four points I'm going to go ahead and give you. Uh, to share about generosity when it comes uh, to these two uh, chapters in 2 Corinthians. It's the heart of generosity, the challenge of generosity, the result of generosity, and the source of generosity. I'll repeat those again throughout for our note takers. If I were a better Baptist, they'd all start with the same letter, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Sometimes it just doesn't work, you guys. So let's look at the first one. First, the heart of generosity. I'm pulling this one from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, which you just heard a moment ago, but a bit of backstory is helpful first. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in modern-day Greece, 
to raise support for a ministry to help serve poorer Christians in Jerusalem. He was a missionary to Gentile nations that surrounded Israel, and he started church after church after church, and then would circle back to them and make sure they were growing and maturing. And in this letter, he's going to go in on a weakness of the Corinthian Christians. The Christians in Jerusalem are facing issues that many of the other New Testament church plants weren't facing. So there's religious persecution happening when Jews became Christians. Conversion to Christianity uh, had adverse social and economic effects there in Jerusalem where Judaism dominated all of life. So many of these converts to Christianity lost their jobs or their ability to own land. Some were disowned by their family members, and there was a famine to boot. The communal sharing that we see in Acts 2 certainly would have helped, but the needs of these people, these Christians in Jerusalem, grew to be great enough that Paul is challenging churches in other locations to give in significant ways to help meet these needs. He's talking to the Christians at Corinth who seem to be hesitant or lacking in their generosity. It seems to be an area of weakness for them. He says in another part of the passage that he's been talking to them about this for a year and he's following up to challenge their response. And to do so, he's going to talk about Christians and different churches in Macedonia who have responded quite differently. This is verse 1 through 4 of chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul's writing to challenge the generosity of a church, and he starts by highlighting the generosity of another church who responded with incredibly generous hearts even in the midst of their own, quote, severe affliction and extreme poverty. We don't know how much the church in Macedonia gave, but in Scripture, it's always about the quality of the gift, not the quantity. So someone like the widow who gives her two mites could give a relatively small amount, and it would be the most beautiful story of generosity compared to someone who gave much more but had far more. In fact, it's beautiful enough to be included in the pages of Scripture. We're simply told that this was a severe test of affliction for them, but even still they responded with open hearts and open wallets because that's what happens when Christ gets a hold of people's hearts. And notice that this was not a response to guilt, but they, quote, begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And that leads to the question, what on earth could have compelled these churches who financially weren't super stable themselves to have that sort of generosity? And the answer is their heart. It says they had an abundance of joy in themselves. And here's a fun detail. That word abundance in verse 2 is the word uh, pariso, which is the same word Paul used to describe their generosity in the same verse. Our translations say they had overflowed in wealth. It's the same word there. So a more literal translation is their abundance of joy led to an abundance of generosity. Paul wants to connect the church, the dots here, that your generosity is a reflection of your heart. So if you want to understand why God cares about what we do with our resources and our money, if you 
want to understand why Jesus talked about money as often as he did, if you want to understand why generosity is such a big deal throughout Scripture, you have to start here. That God has a particular vision for us as humans. Specific character traits and maturity that he envisions us to walk in to the point that we image Christ himself. And growing a heart of generosity is an absolutely essential part of the character transformation that he has in mind for us. So you cannot get from the starting point of a sinful human who is greedy by nature to the desired end point of mature Christ-like character without a heart of generosity, without significantly altering the way we interact with the resources we have access to. And you actually already know this deep down in your bones. And if you want to know why or how you know this deep down in your bones, it's because if you have kids, you want your kids to share. That's maybe the simplest way I could put this. If you have kids, you know how kids act. You don't have to teach a child to say, mine. You don't have to teach them to be selfish or how to fight over toys. If you have had or currently have multiple young kids in the same general age range like we have, you know just how constant and explosive fighting over toys can be. I've heard that statistically, two-year-olds are the most violent of any age group. (laughs) And I believe it, you guys. I believe it. So you can step in and say, now kids, let's share. Even if a toy is yours, you can choose to allow it to bless others and bring the same joy to them that it brings to you. Or as a friend of mine says, toys are meant to bring us together. Whoa, almost dropped that. That was bad. <laughs> have really good reflexes, you guys. Cat-like, some might say. The point is that it's not that kids are to follow the near universal rule that sharing is good. The win is not in learning to follow the rule of sharing. The real win is if or when a child realizes this toy brings me joy, and I think it would bring my sibling joy too. I want to be a part of my sibling receiving the same joy I receive from this. And you guys, when that happens, it's like magic. We have four kids, and the older three are within two years of each other. They're, they're like functional triplets. And over the years, they have fought like cats and dogs at times. But every so often, there will be one of those breakthrough moments where one of them breaks the cycle and genuinely and humbly says, here guys, enjoy this toy. Enjoy this thing with me. I want to share this with you. And as a parent, when that happens, you just sort of freeze in time, like partly in disbelief, partly in amazement. Maybe it feels like angels are singing far away, and all of a sudden Alexa's playing What a Wonderful World out of the blue, because she sees it too. It's magic. Doesn't happen often. So God is not after us begrudgingly deciding to follow a rule to be generous. 
Just like I'm not after one of my kids going, okay, fine. I'll share my toy with a really stinky attitude. That's not what I'm after. He is after the heart change underneath, the character formation underneath, the magic moment where a human who used to be only selfish and greedy does something unexpected and new and opens their hands around the resources entrusted to them. This is why generosity is a necessary part of a Christian view of money and resources. Part of what Christian maturity looks like is going, wait a minute, I have resources that can bless other people and I'm growing into the kind of person who wants to use what I have to bless others. I didn't use to want to share my things, but now I'm starting to want to. What in the world is happening to me? Part of maturing is realizing that one of the primary reasons God has seen fit to bless me with all these resources is so that I can bless others. That's why he gave them to me. Part of why he gave them to me to steward. And people who do not follow that necessary trajectory will end up spiritually stunted, not formed into the beautiful souls God has in mind, not altogether that different from a kid who never learned to share and ends up hoarding their toys in the corner by themselves. We all rightly picture that and think, man, that's sad because that kid is missing out. But honestly, getting to any desired End state of maturity isn't easy because if it was, everyone would do it. It requires a journey of difficulty to get there, which leads me to number two, the challenge of generosity. For a creature who needs resources to survive, choosing to give away some of those resources is a test of faith. You have to make life work with less than you previously had. No matter how much you have, By becoming this kind of person, you will have to make it work on less. And choosing to share the resources you have necessarily creates a real or perceived need or lack. Your obedience creates a void or a hole that resources you used to have used to fill. And throughout scripture, God clearly and repeatedly says to us, hey, if you will trust me, I will fill the void. I will fill it, like he does here in 2 Corinthians 9. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But that act of trusting him and parting with money or resources still requires a jump. And the best illustration I can think of is, is this. It's kind of like biblical generosity is a trust fall. I don't know if you guys have ever done one of those in a, a team building exercise. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not the biggest fan. I don't really like it. I remember when you first do a trust fall, you know, you're kind of freaking out. You're, you know, you're looking over your shoulder and you're like, you're going to catch me, right? Like, for real, you're going to catch me? I don't want to hit my head on the ground. This is not going to be good. And I'll tell you what, even though I, I didn't want to do it at first, there's, there's something about that moment where you you take the deep breath and you lean into the fall. And for that split second in time, it it just kind of stands still and you're like, no, 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 no. And then those arms come out and you're caught and you're free from danger. And I'm so thankful that that person caught me. I'm, I'm so grateful that my head didn't hit the ground. 
There's a reason that exercise exists is to build trust with the person who catches you. And in a lot of ways, biblical generosity is like that. It's, a, it's like a regular trust-building exercise. It's a trust fall every time you give something away, every time you write the check, every time the automated giving happens. It's this posture of saying, I don't know, God, you're going you're gonna to catch me, right? You better catch me because I need to be caught. And that's what he does over and over and over again. He catches you. This is actually why uh, in the Old Testament, the tithe existed. The nation of Israel was commanded, when you pull in your crops, give your first and best to God at the altar. It was actually a way of saying, God, we're going to trust you. And God getting to say, I'll catch you. Just watch. And back then, that would have been a radical sacrifice in part because ancient Israel was an agrarian culture. They relied on their crops for survival. It was their number one resource. And if a drought came and they couldn't grow any more crops, they were in huge trouble. Their whole society would cease to exist if the rains don't come and the crops don't grow. This is way more than I have 10% less now. It was, oh no, if God doesn't bring rain, I may have nothing. And yet God says, do you see those crops? Give your first and best to me and watch what happens. It's Malachi 3.10. This is what God says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I both love and am freaked out by this verse because God's saying, test me, be generous to me and watch what happens. You think I'm bluffing? You think I'm not going to take care of you? Now, this is not saying that the prosperity gospel is true. God won't necessarily give you a Benz or a beach house. That's not at all what I'm saying. Don't twi twist what scripture teaches. But it is a clear invitation to an act of trust and an act of faith to come to God with our first and best and say, here you go. Just to state the obvious, uh, living here is expensive. The price of gas, the housing market, the cost of eggs, Everything has climbed like a rocket, and if Jerome Powell doesn't get inflation under control soon, you guys, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. It's going to be a mess. If you have kids, kids cost money and expenses come up, and it's like I'm praying that our kids have straight teeth and get scholarships. That's what I'm praying, because braces be expensive from what I hear. Just stating facts, and so it can feel like even if you're a fairly decent manager of money and keep an eye on where your money goes, it can still feel like you're just scraping by. And when the Bible talks about generosity, I think it's natural for defenses to come up and for us to say or think, hey, look, God, I, I've got mouths to feed and they're hungry all the time. I've got bills to pay. And scripture is not ignorant to this reality. In fact, scripture says the way to generosity is not to make first sure that you're living sustainable and meeting a certain amount. Rather, Scripture says the way toward generosity is to trust God with your resources by first giving toward Him. And when you do, you realize your heavenly Father will take care of you. Consider how Proverbs puts this. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. Another way to think about this is that you're already tithing to something. 
You're already giving your first and best to something. And God invites us to bring our first and best to be put to use in his kingdom and watch what happens. To watch as he provides and fills any lack our generosity creates. So the overall point here is he will catch you if you execute the trust fall. He will catch you if you execute the trust fall. That feeling that you get when you're falling backwards, wondering if it's going to work, God steps in and he catches you time after time. But giving is not only a, a test of faith, it's also an increaser of faith. As God catches us time and time again, we begin to trust him more and more. And according to our passage today, it's not only that God will catch you when you execute the trust fall, but our walking in trust is actually something that he desires to bless. That one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And don't prescribe that too specifically. This is not saying if you're generous, God will give you your dream car. It may mean that as you are generous, God frees you from how much you inordinately desire your dream car and changes your heart to when he gives you more financial blessing, you actually decide you want to use it for other things. So yeah, don't overly apply this idea. It might get wonky and give you a false expectation that God never agreed to, but we'd be amiss not to apply it at all because the inspired word of God says, if you sow bountifully, you will also reap bountifully. In a general way, God tends to bless those that trust him and walk in generosity. And in the context of these verses, it seems the impetus is that the more you give for the sake of others, the more God will enable you to give even more. He will encourage your generosity by giving you more seed to cheerfully sow. And the focus is not on attaining wealth, but on being blessed to continue to be a blessing. This is, why part, this is part of why we as missionary members commit to tithing as a starting point for generosity because it reveals and grows our faith. And that's what we're after, to become a people like Israel before us who trust God and watch him work and watch how he responds to our faith and obedience. Number three, the result of generosity. We'll pick back up with Paul again right on the heels of the verse we just read. This is verse seven of chapter nine. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As people respond and choose generosity, God delights in cheerful giving. He's like a proud parent watching his children learn to be generous. And then in verse 11 says, you will be enriched. You'll be generous in every way. This will be good for you. You will have a life that's more enriched, more fulfilling. And not only do you get enriched, but the fruit of your generosity produces other people who give thanks to God. Your generosity glorifies and points to him, the one who made you generous in the first place. And pick back up in verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so others' needs are met, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing gift of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So the result of generosity is that God gets praised, people get helped, and we grow. 
God gets praised, people get helped, and we grow. The only thing better than a win-win is a win-win-win. When you study Christianity throughout the early, early church, this is clearly on display. In Acts 2, the starting place of the Christian faith and the formation of the very first church, one of the first things that happens is that people start selling their possession and giving to the apostles to support the church and meet needs. Something changed them at their core, and that change fundamentally altered the way they thought about their money. And as a result, God was praised, and he's been praised on the pages of Scripture ever since. And people got helped both practically and by the gospel going forth in ministry, and those people grew. Historical accounts from this time period repeatedly express awe at how generous Christians were. In a few hundred years after Acts 2, an emperor in Rome wrote that his people should basically be ashamed because the Christians took care of not only their own poor, but their poor as well. This is Emperor Julian. He said, It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, aka Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. In other words, Christians have been so interested in blessing others that a non-Christian emperor is like, man, they're making us look really bad. This has exposed the kind of people they are versus the kind of people we are. God gets praised, people get helped, and we grow. Poor people are taken care of, hungry people are fed, and sick people are given care. And the church has excelled at this historically. This is why many hospitals have denominational names. Churches funded the beginning of a hospital to take care of the needs of people. The church has done well at this over the centuries, and our church has too. I could tell you story after story where there are people hungry, we feed them. Where they need coats, we provide for them. Where they need school supplies, we get them for them. Where our people are struggling financially or lose their jobs and can't pay their bills, we rally and we find a way to pay for them. When people need counseling and can't pay for it, we pay for it. And when I say we, I mean you help pay for all those things if you give to our church. We do whatever we need to to take care of one another and those in our vicinity who are in need. Every single thing we do here is supported by our missionary members and others who call our church home. Every time a kid hears about Jesus in Kid Town, when we hear that crescendo of singing coming from the back, that's, that's what is happening. Every time a new person walks into a building we own and has a warm, welcoming space to hear about Jesus, Every time a believer confesses sin in a life group or expresses doubt or asks for prayer and has others rally around them. You all get to see the stories and and very visible things like next week when we gather for Easter and baptize some folks, but I have a unique view into things because I get to be a witness to much more of what happens. And it's not rare that I find myself in a meeting or having lunch with one of our people hearing about the work of God in their lives or in their marriage, or in their parenting, and I stop and say, wait, do you realize what's happening? Do you see that God is breaking generational sin in you right now? Like, Do you see that the trajectory of your life is radically different from what it was? That you may have inherited brokenness, but you were on a path where you were going to pass along blessing to your kids now? It reminds me so much of the imagery that Paul uses here, that you sow a seed in generosity and you trust God with it. And then you just go about your business. 
You gather with God's people and hear the gospel over and over. You sing and worship him. You go to life group. You pray for each other. You have conversations with your kids. And, and then growth happens over there and a breakthrough happens over there and someone is freed from an addiction and a marriage that looked beyond hope is put back together in the most beautiful way. And someone who had no interest whatsoever in Jesus now wants to follow him and be baptized. And an orphan is adopted into a family and a foster child goes to sleep at night wondering if maybe God loves him the way that this family loves him. The seeds we plant grow into fruit. And I'm telling you guys, the fruit is beautiful. And lastly, number four, the source of generosity. Paul addresses the Corinthian church with the opportunity to respond in generosity and and watch how he ultimately gets to the very heart of the issue the foundational thing that will turn us into people of generosity. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. But Paul's not trying to give a command and force them to do something. He wants their hearts to grow to a place where they want to be generous because that's the necessary trajectory of a heart changed by Christ from greedy to generous. But he does say that he wants their response to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. There's an element where what you do with your money just really puts on display who you are. Like you can say whatever you want. You can claim to have any values or virtues you want, but, but your money is just piercingly revealing. It shows what's under here. And Paul wants the other churches to see that what is under here for the Corinthians is a genuine love for Jesus and others. And then here's the linchpin of his argument for them to grow in generosity. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He preaches the gospel to them. He tells them the story of how Christ was so rich, yet for our sake, he took on not only poverty, but human flesh, so that by his descent, we might become spiritually rich, that we might become children of the Most High God. So grace is the secret sauce for how this heart change happens. If we ever want to make the shift to be people of radical blessing that God intends us to be, it will be because of grace. If we grow to be sensitive and aware of the needs of others and realize our resources are tools to be shared for God's purposes, it will be because grace makes it down to our hearts and remakes us on the inside from greed to generosity. We need no one to teach us how to be selfish with our resources. We naturally orient ourselves to money and resources with the belief that keeping all of them to ourselves will lead to the most happiness in our lives. We already do that. What we need is someone to teach us that hoarding will never lead to our happiness. Just like a kid who never learns to share will never be happy. We need someone to come alongside us and show us how we are meant to find joy and blessing in this life and salvation in the life beyond. And Paul points our eyes up to Jesus and he says, that is who you learn from. He became poor so you could become rich. He took on difficulty so you could have blessing. He took your stripes so that you could be treated as a son 
or daughter. I love this quote from a Scottish minister who preached in Scotland over 150 years ago. He preached a sermon on giving, and the sermon is just so powerful because he takes exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and he brings it to bear like this. He says, do you know the grace of Christ? Oh, my dear friends, if you would be like Christ, and you pray that you will be, become like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. And then where would you be? Objection, but many people in need are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have looked at you and said, look at these wicked rebels. Should I lay my life down for these? No, I will give to the good angels and the deserving poor. But no, he left the 99 sheep and came after the lost. He gave his blood to the undeserving Objection, but people who I give my money to might abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing with far greater truth. Christ knew thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make his blood an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. My dear Christians, if you want to be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, even to the violent and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so shall you be. It is not your money I want, it is your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's it. That's the heart, the challenge, the result, and the source of generosity. This is the opportunity Paul gave the Corinthians to embrace and the one set before us today. And I know that we have a large array of people in our church. I know we have some very generous people who give to an array of things, including our church and missionaries and ministries and needs that arise. I know we probably have some who do not know Jesus and who are scratching their heads at some of this, wondering what could possibly motivate someone to live like this. And I imagine we have some people who are believers in Jesus, but who, like the Corinthians, do not yet excel in this area who are just starting their character transformation in this regard. And so I'd like to just wrap up today and our our series as a whole with with two things. Uh, The first is a thought, and the second is a thank you. They both start with TH, TH, so maybe I'm a decent Baptist after all. First, a thought. A few weeks back, we talked about how money is used for provision, enjoyment, and blessing. And we asked the question about the categories of provision and enjoyment. How much should I spend on provision and enjoyment? How much is too much on those categories? And we gave the answer, ultimately, I don't know. And I'm hesitant to get into specifics. But we said you should definitely be asking that question. And based on when and where you live, it seems a fairly safe bet that you might be spending too much on the categories of provision and enjoyment. Not a definite, I don't know your budget, but at least a a probably, a something you should consider. And I would say the same thing about the blessing or generosity category, that purely based on where and when we live, if I had to guess, it would be that we probably don't put a high enough percentage there. That's maybe a safe bet for, for many of us. A hunch would be that many of us might be underdoing it in that category. I like the way C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Another way to think about this would be, what would a non-Christian think if they looked at your budget? I think the picture scripture paints is that if a non-Christian were to look at your budget, they should probably be a little bit shocked. They would be like, this is not a token donation to charity. Like, this is a radically different way of relating to resources. What could possibly motivate you to live like this? I don't understand this. If they were to look at your budget and not be caught off guard at all, I'd say that could mean something is off. And you, don't, you and I don't live somewhere that encourages us in this. So it's a question worth wrestling with for all of us. That's the thought. Now for the thank you. I know that many of you for years have given faithfully and sacrificially to our church in addition to any other things you give to. And I simply want to end by saying thank you. And that the character change God is bringing about in you is beautiful. And that so much fruit has come and will continue to come through it. And specifically, I just want to point out that next week we will gather for Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And it'll be a rare time that, that most of the people who call our church home will be gathered together. On any given normal Sunday, anywhere from a third to a half of us are here. But Easter tends to be a, a bit different. And our kids are going to sing a song about Jesus very loudly, I assume. And we're going to celebrate that he is risen indeed. And we're going to baptize some people. And you won't know all of the stories. But I just want to tell you that gathered in that amphitheater will be stories that would make you teary-eyed. People who have hope now that we're on a really, really dark path. Marriages that have been beautifully restored. Kids who have a family. People whose grandkids will be different because of the spiritual legacy they are starting now. And for those of us who have sacrificed considerably for our church over the years, I just want us to look around next week and just take a mental snapshot and have a moment of clarity where we see that's what's happening. Where we see at least a little bit some of the fruit that has come from all of the sowing month after month, year after year. And that will be part of the fruit, part of the harvest of righteousness, as Paul says. So I just want to say thank you because this wouldn't work without us doing that. And I want you to be able to see visible evidence that your sowing brings about reaping. Please pray with me.